0: Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Welcome to the December chapter of Always on EM, a podcast about emergency medicine from Mayo Clinic. I'm Venk Bellam I am excited to co-host the show with my friend and colleague, Dr. Alex Finch. How are you this morning?
1: Very, very excited for this.
0: As we approach the end of our second season of the show, we are incredibly grateful that you have tuned in, and I hope if you've missed any episodes, you go back and check them out. As you are probably aware, I'm going to ask if you could comment, like, or follow our show on whatever platform you're using. We are always incredibly appreciative every time you do. Also, you can check us out on Instagram if you haven't already, or email us at alwaysonem at gmail.com. Okay. Today's guest is on my personal Mount Rushmore of people who have shaped my career. He is Dr. Henry Schiller. He is professor of surgery and former chair for the Division of Trauma, Critical Care and General Surgery here at Mayo Clinic. He has won Teacher of the Year four times for the surgery program and is in Mayo Clinic's Teacher of the Year Hall of Fame, in fact. He has served as chair for the division in the past, as I have mentioned, and he's also served as medical director for the entire trauma center of Mayo Clinic for several years. He has extensive combat medical experience with the U.S. Army and is currently lieutenant colonel with the U.S. Army Reserve From an academic standpoint, he is not only a gifted teacher He is an exceptional researcher with nearly 75 peer-reviewed publications and just under 20 book chapters completed Dr. Henry Schiller, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thanks for having me. (laughs) You bet. Yes We
1: are incredibly excited to have you today. Dr. Schiller was somebody I looked up to in my training. And now that I'm on staff, I remember being an intern in the surgical ICU and rounding in the middle of the night and learning about all practices of critical care and acute care surgery, from PEEP to antibiotics and pressors. And so I am so incredibly grateful for the education that you've given me over the years. And I can say without hesitation that when I have that incredibly sick trauma patient, that patient that's dying, Dr. Schiller is the person I want in my corner with me. And so we're incredibly excited to have you talk about today's topic. Vink, what are we talking about today?
0: Today we're going to talk about bleeding that's not hitting the floor or bleeding within the body. And I'm excited about this topic. I think there's some hidden things in here that emergency physicians can make mistakes on, and I know that you've published on some of these topics, and I'm really excited to dig into some of that. So
1: I feel like when I see the blood, it's easier. I know exactly what's going on, and, and in a lot of ways, the management is streamlined. But in emergency medicine, I actually see a fair number of bounce backs, patients that come back, and suddenly there was a hematoma, or something's getting worse, and we didn't predict it. And so... We're really here to dig into some of the best practices and learn more about bleeding that sometimes we don't immediately see. So with that, how about we jump in?
0: I think that's a great idea.
1: Dr. Schiller, you had published an incredible review of the Mayo Clinic experience on Morel Lavallee lesions. First of all, am I saying it correctly?
2: I think the French is Lavallee, but we call them Morel Lavallee lesions. Okay,
1: all right. So I've got the American pronunciation down. That's all I need. All right, Morel Lavallee lesions, establishment of a practice management guideline. This is our, our first thing. We're gonna start with extremities and kind of work our way in. What exactly is a Morel Lavallee lesion and how is it different from a standard hematoma?
2: Yeah, so a Morel Lavallee lesion, the other name is a closed degloving injury and it's where the skin is literally ripped off of the underlying fascia. And historically, it was described in the orthopedic literature, high energy, usually associated with pelvic fractures, hip fractures, an ejection from a vehicle would be a typical thing. We see them even without this high energy mechanism. We see them from falls, particularly if there's a shearing, you know, somebody uh, slides down the stairs, it shears their thighs. We see them with uh, equestrian accidents, motorcycle accidents, and... Your your comment about if you see the blood on the floor, it's easy. Yeah, we do see these degloving injuries where the skin is disrupted, and that's a lot easier to pick up. The Morrell Valle lesions, the skin is ripped off, the underlying fascia, lymphatics are disrupted, perforators are disrupted, and yet they look just like typical ecchymosis that you'd you'd get from from a fall. The difference is that they go on to form a chronic scar capsule if they go to the chronic phase and it's literally like having a sack of fluid on your flank or on your hip, which are the most common areas. And you know, got interested in this because there wasn't a lot in the literature how to deal with this. We had six partners at the time of this paper and we had about 20 different ways of managing them and so decided to look at it to see if we could glean any any lessons from it, and we had a, a weekly research meeting. I, I proposed this idea. Nobody was excited about it, but this paper actually became uh, very popular because there isn't a lot of guidance out there. Uh, Eastern Association for Surgery of Trauma had me give a podcast on it, and now I'm getting calls from patients all over the country because nobody wants to deal with it or knows how to deal with it. And I knew I arrived when I was taking CSAP, which is the uh, American Board of Surgery Board Review Course for Surgeons, and there's a Morel Lavalle lesion question. I'm looking at the question like, well, I don't know what they want. I know what I would do, <laughs> and I put the answer, I got it right, and I looked at the uh, review, and it was my paper that they were quoting. So nice. I'm like, huzzah.
1: Yes that that is is making it we, we, we hope that in the emergency medicine board review that our podcast with you will be cited for okay. the moral level a lesion <laughs> we, as well. we can only hope <laughs> <that>. right <laughs> exactly
0: it might already be that his paper is cited and we just don't know
1: absolutely you've touched on this a little bit you talked about a fibrous sac in em it's all about <clears> what <throat> happens when we miss so what happens if it's completely missed and this fibrous sac is there. Is it a scarring issue? Does it get infected? Yeah.
2: So the Morella Valle lesions, first of all, the large ones, you can have ischemic skin loss. And that that will generally present over the first week. Again, that's easy because you see it. The issue are the patients who have the Morella Valle lesions, big fluid space under the skin, Looks just like typical swelling with ecchymosis. Very hard to recognize, but the the best sign is just pain out of proportion to what you would expect from bruising. We miss them too. Patients are on the uh, trauma service and they have multiple injuries and they don't notice it until six weeks later. And by six weeks later, what the body does is it forms a fibrous scar capsule. If you just try to drain it, you take the drain out and it reaccumulates because the fiber scar capsule is slick and won't scar down and obliterate the dead space and of course nature pours a vacuum. What the paper found was was the common denominator regardless of whether it was acute or chronic is if you have more than 50 cc's aspirated in it or if we have imaging that suggests more than 50 cc's based on dimension we take it to the OR and we open it up and we debride it and what we will invariably find bits of fat that have been encased in scar they almost look like pearl onions it's very the Mm -hmm. the residents love it when we pull them out they're like oh oh my goodness what's that you have to restore inflammation to the scar capsule so we rough it up we cauterize it to get an inflammatory response and then we put a drain in to let it seal down Now, since the paper, which came out in 2014, I I think I've gone a little bit beyond that. For the very large ones, which typically are the ones that that you get called for, we will also now suture plicate the scar capsule down. Some of us used to do capsulectomies where you take the scar capsule out as the ultimate expression of trying to get the thing to scar down. But if you take the scar capsule out, you have nothing to so close the dead space. So now, for the big ones, we will put absorbable sutures in there, try to obliterate the dead space, leave a drain for a month. And then the other piece of it is you're looking how you can avoid shear. So because these are largely the hip and buttock, we encourage the patients to use bicycle shorts for compression. And then what can you do to prevent? sheer motion which will tend to lift the skin off of the uh, underlying fascia as you're trying to heal it and so you know for the hip in particular we'll encourage them to use a neomobilizer because really if you've got a neomobilizer you're not going to have big uh, hip movement this is something that not a lot of people across the country are doing and i have people flying in from new york state because nobody will take care of these nobody knows what to do for them
1: You have already started to talk about an emergency medicine physician's nightmare, which is the missed case that suddenly has something that that can't be fixed. If I am smart enough to try and diagnose this, what is the diagnostic test of choice? And you touched on 50 mLs being the magic number. How am I getting to that
2: value? Right. We have CT scans on virtually all of the patients. And when you look at the CT scan, you're looking to see if there's a fluid collection or hematoma under the skin as opposed to just ecchymosis where you know it's it's diffused through the tissues and if you see a collection of fluid that's significant under the skin you can look at the dimensions and estimate the fluid volume and so if it's uh 20 by 20 by Five. okay, that's uh, 400 by 5, that's more than 50 cc. And, and you know, I'm embarrassing myself because I didn't oh. do the, the total math. What we would then do is we would try to aspirate it. And the thing that I don't know is if it's solid hematoma, and hematoma, you know, has the consistency of Welch's grape jelly, you can't really aspirate. If it's solid hematoma... We don't necessarily go in after it unless, you know, it's so large that we're concerned about uh, skin compromise from pressure. There seems to be that if it's a solid hematoma, you must not have the lymphatic disruption, I suppose, and they don't necessarily go on to Morel-Lavalli lesions. But if you get 50 cc's and it's usually uh, serosanguinous, then we'll open it up, and it's horrifying. You see all this dead fat, and you see all this uh, clotted blood. It's all sort of floating around in uh, uh, serous fluid. What I'd say is we're on the lookout for it, and we still miss it. Either ultrasound, and you know, you you guys are great at uh, bedside ultrasound. If you see a fluid collection, and it looks like uh, more than 50 cc's, try to aspirate it, or CT scan.
0: And just to clarify, if it's within the muscle, that's not It's not a morel Right. So if
2: it's within the muscle, that's more likely to be
0: a hematoma. Okay. These are in the skin layer. And what I'm hearing is that active extravasation on CT is not necessarily a determinant of whether this person needs to go to the operating room. It's more about the size.
2: Right. Morel Lavala lesions, generally we don't worry about bleeding with them. They're not the bleeding issue. now hematomas are a different thing we can touch on that but uh now the morella voli lesions bleeding is not an issue but it's so much easier patients do better if you can drain them early because then you don't form this fibrous scar capsule that, that yeah. really prevents adherence but uh, hematoma i'm all about talking hematoma next
1: i love it yeah. and further differentiating the two, so i need a contrasted CT to see this lesion. I'm thinking about a CTA of the extremity when I'm trying to see active extravasation. In this case, am I, is it the same kind of test?
2: Yeah, so I guess if, if you're seeing the patient de novo, they've, they've just yep. had a motorcycle crash, yeah, you're gonna get a contrasted CT. And what you're really looking for with the contrasted CT is source of hemorrhage, which will include intramuscular uh, hematomas, subcutaneous, retroperitoneal hematomas, and you're looking for the contrast blush that suggests that there's some sort of active bleeding. With the Morella-Vale lesion, there's not active bleeding is not really the issue. The issue is, oh, it's a space that's going to fill up with more of a serosanguinous fluid. Incredibly helpful.
0: So I'm thinking if they are coming back to us, at, you know, with a recurrent collection of fluid. Maybe we don't need contrast on that second one.
2: Exactly. So what I'd say is, oh, patient uh, was in a uh, motor vehicle crash or motorcycle crash a week before, they're coming back with a swollen thigh, it's ecchymotic, and it seems like they've got pain out of proportion to what you would expect from just soft tissue injury. That's where I, I think, you know, CT, ultrasound, any of those things, to look for a morella valley lesion. That, that would be the presentation that I would expect for a morella valley lesion.
1: The flip side of the same question is less than 50 mLs. Is that a patient who just goes home? Do they still need to see a surgeon at some point? How does that decision make you Yeah go?
2: Less than 50 mLs, they generally resolve on their own. And you know, regardless of uh, uh, how much is aspirated, we would recommend compression to try to prevent it from uh, expanding. We would not necessarily follow-up imaging on them. But if they came to our attention, we would plan to see them two weeks later to see if there's been a change.
0: I suspect the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that even when the volume is under 50 cc's, the patient needs good education about how to prevent it from getting worse. I assume we would still recommend the compression and minimizing shear stress activities. Correct. So I think our discharge instructions could I don't think they say anything like that. No. We'd have to work on It would have on to
2: be... Yeah, so right. if and I the, were... Right, and the problem is compression around the hip and the proximal thigh, because ACE wraps just don't do it. Yeah. I recommend getting a pair of bike shorts. Interesting. And the bike shorts, they have enough compression with the spandex that that, that they seem to do it. Spanks don't seem to, to be enough. Hmm.
1: Okay, so I have a patient, and uh, the CT read is for a more level a lesion, but it's only... 10 cc's. The pain is well controlled and it's in the thigh. I'm recommending bicycle shorts. If we can get a little ACE wrap around it, that's helpful. Ice, elevation and careful return precautions. If it feels like it's getting bigger, if it feels like it's getting worse, please come back to the ED. Anything else? Any other pearls you share with a patient going home with that?
0: No, I think that's exactly it. Okay. Do you think that they should have a surgical consultation if it's
2: if you have concern I, that plugs in follow up yeah. yeah and the idea is that if you're going to try to drain it without getting the scar capsule your time frame is 4 weeks beyond 4 weeks that's okay. where it goes chronic okay
1: that's really helpful to understand that pathophys
0: and then i think we can educate the patients that although this is very concerning and sometimes visually striking there are a couple of weeks if the follow up is delayed for some reason now let's talk about hematomas. Should we? Hematomas. All right. Let's contrast this. What is the... Contrast. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll contrast a, all the time. a little witty at this point. <laughs> uh, let's contrast this with hematomas. So what do you see as differences in the mechanisms of injury that cause these two types of injuries and the presentations? Well, uh, you
2: know, the, the mechanisms are the same mechanisms if you're talking uh, traumatic you know, you tend to get uh, skin-based stuff from shearing, muscle injury. However, that happens, direct uh, tearing, that, that that sort of thing. So many patients are on anticoagulation that really exacerbates the problem. And you know, the spontaneous hematomas. I presume that we'll talk about, uh, but uh, the traumatic ones. You're looking to see for ongoing bleeding. You're looking for contrasted studies, and you're looking for a contrast blush. And, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, if you compare uh, splenic injury, a contrast blush has been shown to say, hey, 80% of these patients will have a a further bleed. And so the contrast blush to us really mandates angioembolization for the spleen. For the liver, it's less clear, but it's analogous. But if you're talking intramuscular, retroperitoneal, skin-based, it's only about 20 percent that will go on to bleed with that and require, you know, an intervention whether it's angioembolization or surgical exploration. So, you know, the first thing is reverse anticoagulation and, you know, you guys are all on top of that. The second is that, uh, you know, there is the coagulopathy of trauma which is associated with, you know, injury severity score and increasing uh, tissue uh, injury. And if we have a severely injured trauma patient that's at risk for ongoing bleeding, we specifically follow the thromboelastogram as opposed to INR or something like this, as you know. You know, know, our experience, and and now it's in the literature, is that the thromboelastogram is much more sensitive for coagulopathy than uh, standard coagulation parameters. And compression, if it's compressible, admissions, serial hemoglobins, and the question is, is it it ongoing bleeding? And if it's ongoing bleeding, despite reversing anticoagulation and compression where you can do it and immobilization, then the question is, is it surgically accessible or easily surgically accessible? In which case, I think the best thing is to uh, incise, evacuate, and we would put hemostatic packing like quick clot in there. Or if it's not surgically accessible, or the surgery would be so morbid, ongoing bleeding, refer to IR. But IR is good for artery bleeding, arterial bleeding. They can't do anything about venous bleeding. So oftentimes, let's say a retroperitoneal hematoma, which is which is difficult to get to uh, uh, surgically, the home run with trauma is, oh, they they see a lumbar branch, a lumbar artery that's bleeding and they're able to embolize and that stops the bleeding. With the spontaneous hematomas, oftentimes there's no artery involved and so IR is much less useful.
1: So among patients who present to the emergency department after a traumatic episode and we see a swollen limb, get a CTA and see a, a blush, it's usually something like there is active extrav. Is there, similar to the moral level A lesion, a volume that's making you concerned that we're going to go to the OR immediately, a specific CT finding, or how do you make that decision?
2: Let's take a subcutaneous hematoma, because I think subcutaneous versus intramuscular subfascial is is a different thing. Subcutaneous hematoma, first is how much blood is there the more blood there is, the more likely it is that they are going to have ongoing bleeding. And the idea is, even in somebody without a coagulopathy, if you have ongoing bleeding, it's tearing the tissue, it's causing more disruption of small vessels, which leads to more bleeding, which causes more disruption of small vessels. If it looks like they're actively bleeding, you go to the OR and you open it up, you evacuate hematoma. And again, the, the, the hematoma really has the consistency of grape jelly. It's you could not get it out with a drain. And then we have found that you, you usually can't find the dominant bleeding. You might, you might get lucky and find a, a bridging vessel But the thing is so raw and you have so much microvascular bleeding from this tearing effect that that you just have to put a topical hemostatic on. And so we will use quick clot and then we will seal it from the environment with a, a vacuum dressing on top of it to keep it sterile. And then we wait 48 hours and, you know, you correct coagulopathy, you immobilize for extremity you want to raise it if you can so you know in particular the lower extremity you you want to raise it above the level of the heart because rho gh is the the pressure of a fluid column which will increase venous bleeding
1: i remember this from middle of the night
2: icu
0: this that's, was, that's right rho this GH. was
1: learning in the middle of the night
0: okay i have to admit i don't recall the details of this equation anymore and need a refresher for those of us working alongside the greats like henry and alex here is your refresher The pressure, P, of an object submerged in a fluid is calculated by multiplying the density of the fluid, which is represented by R or rho, times the acceleration of gravity, G, times the height of the fluid above the object, H, hence P equals rho gh. The same equation will come up within the Bernoulli principle in cardiovascular physiology of blood vessels. Of course, that's related to what we're talking about here, but also in relation to deep sea diving issues, for example. Thanks for attending my hydrostatic mathematics TED Talk.
2: My experience is if you go back before 48 hours You take the quick clot out, you get microvascular bleeding again. I think you need to wait that 48 hours for fibrin to cross-link or, you know, whatever the reaction is. And then, then you close it over a drain. And generally the patients do well. But, you know, when we're looking at subcutaneous hematoma that doesn't have immediate indication to go to the OR, we're also looking at skin viability because as the hematoma expands you're disrupting perforating vessels. The perforating vessels are the richest blood supply to the skin. And remember, the perfusion pressure equals MAP minus tissue pressure. Tissue is increasing. You've lost your perforators. You are at risk for ischemic skin loss. And so if you see signs of ischemia, in particular uh, ischemic epidermolysis, which typically starts as uh, hemorrhagic bullae, that's an absolute indication to go to the OR to save the skin.
0: Just thinking through this now, especially as you're talking about the pressure gradient differentials, if we were to just release the pressure by making a superficial incision, since it's like a jelly-like consistency, are we doing any good
2: there or not? I don't think so. I think what what you're trading is you're, you're not necessarily doing anything for the bleeding. You may release the pressure, but now what you're exposing the patient to is risk of infection. Exactly. Because blood is great food for bacteria. My world view is somewhat grim, but my world view is that life is a battle between us and the bacteria trying to eat us. <laughs> and if you if you make a little incision where the hematoma is not completely evacuated, but now it's contaminated, I think that's a mistake. Now, if the patient is at imminent loss for skin and you sterilely do it and you evacuate some hematoma and you put some sort of occlusive dressing so uh, until they can go to the ER, okay. Here at St. Mary's, we generally have OR access within an hour, sooner if it's you know life threatening. So that's not an issue. But I could imagine you know other institutions where there may be a, a delay in getting to the OR. That might be a temporizing thing, but always consider the infectious
0: risk. And how is the? So we've been talking about subcutaneous bleeding. If I'm hearing correctly, intramuscular bleeding, although we might see a blush or we might see active extravasation. Usually, they don't go on to need intervention. Yeah. Four I, out of five.
2: I think that's right. So, with intramuscular bleeding, you don't really worry about the skin so much, but you worry about compartment syndrome. We just had a woman who had a large intramuscular buttock uh, hematoma. You also worry about nerve compression. So, this was uh, close to the sciatic notch. And so, we monitored sciatic nerve function you know, dorsal flexion, plantar flexion, uh, knee flexion. And serial hemoglobin determinations, and if the hemoglobin continues to go down, you take them to the OR as long as it's surgically accessible. If the hemoglobin continues to go down and it's not easily surgically accessible, then we would try IR. And uh, in particular, that, that, that's what I, I would recommend for the retroperitoneal, you know, psoas-type hematomas where, at least with trauma, it tends to be lumbar arteries that, that they can impact. The other piece of a muscle injury is if it's a big muscle belly, you know, you're talking a thigh, you're talking a buttock, the other piece of it is immobilization of the muscle. And again, this 48 hours seems to be the the magic thing that if you have venous bleeding of the muscle that it stops. Oh, now you walk them around, you fire the muscle, it tears off the the hematoma, it provokes more bleeding. And, you know, this is from uh, when I was in the army, you know, looking at the field manuals. The training is if you have uh, injury to a major muscle belly in a combat situation, you get out of the kill zone and then you immediately immobilize to keep that muscle from having ongoing bleeding.
0: How should we recommend immobilization or minimize movements in the emergency department? Are we thinking pure bed rest or like crutches and non-weight bearing?
2: Yeah, I would say if it's that big a hematoma, admit them in pure bed rest. It's it's hard to enforce that outside the hospital environment. You no, know, I guess if it's an arm, you know, a, you know, that's different. Guy yeah. with a big bicep, okay, yeah. fine, but if it's a lower extremity, yeah. And again, there's the raising it as close to or above the level of the right atrium as possible all right
1: i'm going to try and call some of this back so you can correct my understanding so far so morel level a lesion is a degloving injury and a lot of these are going to start with the same mechanism i have a concerning traumatic mechanism i'm looking at an extremity that doesn't look quite right it's a little bit swollen and in my acute phase Probably I'm going to get a CT unless I'm very facile with ultrasound, but something is making me concerned. So if I see that the disruption is above the fascia, between the fascia and the skin layer, I'm more concerned for a moral level a lesion unless it's a subcutaneous hematoma. And for the moral level a lesion, it really has less to do with, and I'm not going to see a read for something as commonly as an active blush. The real concern is the volume and the complicating fibrous capsule that's going to happen. And at that point really the the question is do I need a surgical consultation for drainage uh, at some point or in the next 4 weeks to prevent that healing process.
2: What I'd add is that because of the debris that's in it, percutaneous drainage without I&D doesn't seem to work.
1: That's very helpful. And then I have my subcutaneous hematomas and there it's going to be a similar imaging pathway, but I may or may not see an active blush. What's interesting and a totally new learning point for me is an active blush portends a different prognosis for something like a spleen than a periphery hematoma where in the periphery that might communicate less chance of active rebleeding. Right. And so really what I'm doing in that case is if it's a very large hematoma, I might get serial hemoglobins, but otherwise I'm compressing, I'm trying to elevate it. And when I'm thinking about my partners who might be at a site that there's not a surgeon, I'm, I might reach out to a consulting surgeon some distance away. But things that I can do in my ED while I'm boarding the patient is to get Uh, hemoglobins with some, is this this like an every six hour type
2: thing? Yeah, yeah. every six, every eight hours.
1: And trying to see, is that going down or not? Is the pain starting to get out of proportion and doing regular skin and motor exams? That is similar to the muscle hematoma, where really the key is compartment syndrome type exam with uh, a good motor and neurological exam and immobilization if it's a, a large... A large
2: injury. Right. And again, if it's, if it's an area that's compressible, uh, try to get some compression on it. Exactly.
0: I was going to add for the listeners, if you haven't listened to Dr. Kreuter's podcast episode with us called um, Sorry, Taylor, There's No Bad Blood, he goes over thrombolastogram really well, and then some other tests you would potentially want to get in a bleeding patient with a potential coagulopathy. And I think it augments exactly what Dr. Schiller was saying on how we could use these tests.
1: I, I always have to chuckle because Dr. Kreuters, uh, he talked about making the bumper sticker that was Teg wrote him, a dirty test for a dirty time, a dirty time being there's a lot of blood on your shoes. And so I loved it. And the literature that he cited for that was all trauma surgery literature, I remember, because yeah. that's really breaking down how to interpret this test uh, in a digestible way. So go check that out. We are going to move more to central contained bleeding, but before we do, I can't miss an opportunity to get battlefield recommendations on tourniquet applications. So in the opposite situation, I walk in into the room and there's a lot of blood on the floor and I see an arm or, or a leg with a pulsatile bleeding source. You've seen a lot of trainees apply tourniquets over the years. What is the advice you give them as in, in these heated moments?
2: Well, what I'd say is, you know, hats off to your trainees because they're very sophisticated and and they do it exactly correctly. It's more uh, EMS applied tourniquets where we see misapplication. So we just had a motorcyclist with a traumatic amputation. The patient had a traumatic below knee amputation, lots of posterior muscle left, but the uh, tibia gone below the tibial tuberosity. And there was a combat application tourniquet, but it wasn't applied above the level of injury. It was applied around the muscle within the level of injury. So the whole point is to stop the popliteal artery, so that's too distal. And then above that, there was a piece of clothing that was knotted uh, around like a tourniquet. So I was raised in the era where tourniquets were bad. And this comes from the Vietnam experience where tourniquets uh, served as ligatures and uh, concern was nerve injury and tissue necrosis. I was deployed to Iraq in 2004, and that's when I was the medical director for trauma in Iraq. And even before I got in country, there was a rapid fielding initiative where every soldier going into the combat zone got a combat application tourniquet. set off a a number of studies. Don Jenkins was involved in a lot of these. And the specialized tourniquets like the soft tourniquet, the combat application tourniquet, they have a windlass. And one of the key features of the design is that the band of the tourniquet that goes around the extremity doesn't narrow when you tighten it. And so what we found, you know, I, I did the initial analysis of extremity uh, injury deaths, we found that the improvised tourniquets didn't work, even if you had a windlass.
1: We're talking about, like, a blanket and a... Right, kind of uh, you have a
2: bandana and yep. a stick, or you have a towel and a stick, and the stick is the windlass to give you the mechanical advantage. They don't seem to stop the bleeding. But the combat application tourniquet, the other uh, commercial tourniquets, did seem to to work. As it turns out, one of the benefits of the combat application tourniquet or the other uh, acceptable tourniquets is that when you tighten them, the fabric doesn't narrow. And remember that pressure equals force divided by area. You want to maintain an area uh, so you don't generate so much pressure that you get a nerve injury. And so one of the mistakes is put a tourniquet on and it doesn't stop the bleeding, you continue to tighten it and continue to tighten it. And you can, you can predict that the larger the, the diameter of the extremity, the more tourniquets you need, you put the tourniquets in sequence because it's the circumference of the extremity with the width of the tourniquet. So the bigger the thigh, the more width you need, so the more sequential tourniquets you need. The other piece of it is that, uh, you you know, you look for pulsatile bleeding or you feel for a pulse and you apply tourniquets, you know, you tighten it or you do sequential tourniquets until you see that pulse gone or feel the pulse gone or see the pulsatile bleeding gone. That if you don't get enough tourniquet pressure to stop arterial bleeding, what you've done is you've created a venous tourniquet so that, that arterial inflow continues and now you exacerbate venous bleeding.
1: That's incredibly helpful. So a couple practices, you come down, there's a level red trauma and I'm there and I'm starting to put a tourniquet on, right move or wrong move. It's a a distal forearm injury. Am I starting my tourniquet high and tight or as close to the wound as possible?
2: You want to be as close to the wound as possible, but, but proximal to where the arterial injury should be. Okay. With that said, with with this below-knee amputation, there really wasn't space below the knee to put an adequate tourniquet, and so you don't want to put it on a bony prominence. So in this particular patient, to compress the popliteal artery, we went above the knee. Okay. And required, tighten the one down, the three turns, Still saw bleeding, put another one on, Tighten it down, three turns, watched the
0: bleeding, bleeding stopped, we're good. All right. When you're doing those sequential applications, are you starting distally and then applying proximal to it, or starting proximally with anticipation of putting more distal?
2: As close to distal as you think you can get to control the, the vessel, then you come proximally, proximally, proximally. Got it.
1: All right, so I see bleeding in the distal extremity, I'm going to first completely expose it and make sure that wherever I'm going to put my tourniquet is well above the injury. And if there's a, a joint nearby and it's, I can't get a good, a good lock below the joint, I'm going to come just above the joint. And I'm going to make the actual tourniquet as tight as I can so that I only have to go about three turns on the windlass and go from there. If I need to do sequential tourniquets, I will, and I'm looking for a decrease in the pulsatile blood.
2: Right, um, I mean, ultimately, if you are if you have a palpable pulse, you're looking to see that the palpable pulse disappears.
1: I was a volunteer in our department's research study on this topic, where one of my favorite attendings, what we did was we applied different tourniquets and on volunteer residents and saw did our perception of how tight it was to lose a pulse was that accurate on ultrasound? And it was a very funny study to get these to get these put on you, so. Well,
2: what, what was the result?
1: <laughs> the result was that many times when we think we've lost a palpable pulse, there's still actually some ultrasound Doppler flow. And so it, I think what you alluded to was a common mistake is you're not tight enough, and then that can create problems down the line. And usually in the rush to put it on, we're quick to, to put it on and to turn the windlass a couple times, but we really have to be very thoughtful about making sure we're tight.
2: I think that's, uh,
0: that's it. And, and if you're tight and it's not working, put another one on. I think that's been my pitfall. And I learned from you, Dr. Schiller, in the trauma bay that apl- applying more tourniquets is the answer, not continuing to tighten the same one. Our plan was to start on the limbs and move proximally or centrally. Should we go ahead and take the journey? Let's do it. One area that I struggle with is retroperitoneal hematomas, first thinking about them, remembering to think about them, understanding that some of our imaging modalities like fast exam might miss them. There's so many pitfalls that I could fall into. Take me through your approach when you're thinking about retroperitoneal hematoma and how you go about evaluating them. Okay. So retroperitoneal hematomas, I would make
2: a distinction between traumatic and non-traumatic. With traumatic. You're looking at kidneys. Okay, the kidney is a source for embolization. You're looking for uh, associated spinal fractures, transverse process fractures, and in, in particular looking for psoas hematomas. And those generally will have a target for embolization. So you're looking for a blush. If you don't see a blush, you're monitoring the patient for signs of ongoing bleeding. You know, if they're anticoagulated, you reverse the anticoagulation. Generally, if it's a traumatic and it's a significant retroperitoneal hematoma, you're also concerned about the coagulopathy of trauma, and so you'll monitor serial hemoglobins, and we will also get serial thromboelastograms. If we don't see a blush with a traumatic retroperitoneal hematoma, but we see ongoing bleeding or hemodynamic instability, we will still refer to IR. And this this also goes with the uh, the pelvic hematomas generally they will find, you know, a lumbar or something to embolize. If continues to bleed, IR is unsuccessful, or they don't have a target, then you decide which incision is going to be best, and you you do the packing with the, the hemostatic. Fairly uncommon to have to do that. Okay, now if you think about the spontaneous ones, which I would include, oh, you know, I bumped against the uh, counter and uh, now I've had back pain. These patients, you know, invariably are anticoagulated. You know, the the literature says 80%. I I think it's more than that. And the anticoagulated patients generally don't have an angiographic target, you know, uh, less than 20% will have an angiographic target. So again, you reverse the anticoagulation with whatever agent, and you follow serial hemoglobins, and 80% of those patients will, 80% plus, will just stop with that.
0: Well, backing up, on physical examination, how often are you seeing things like ray Turner sign, Cullen sign? Do you see them often? Early,
2: usually not. A week later, you know, the the blood sort of travels, and you're like, oh, yeah, look at that flank. Uh, Oh, it's kind of edematous. It's uh, turning colors. But early on, it's not particularly helpful as the population gets larger, more obese. And, you know, I'm one of those people. Harder to uh, feel the retroperitoneal hematomas. But if you have somebody with a retroperitoneal hematoma that you see on CT scan do an exam on that person, and I encourage our trainees to do it, because you would think, oh, it's going to be a firm mass, it's going to be so easy, and really it's subtle. You can only determine it by comparing to the other side, and you know, I see a lot of our residents and uh, some of my partners examine with the tips of their fingers, You know, they're sort of bouncing the belly with the tips, you cannot feel this with the tips of your fingers. You have to use the flat of your hand and go down slowly and you know if you're comparing the normal side to the retroperitoneal side all you feel is a fullness that you can't push your hand down as far I take it as a training opportunity for myself every time yeah. I see one of these things oh I didn't pick it up on exam I go back and I've actually picked up a few and it's helpful on serial exams to say, oh, it doesn't quite go to midline, oh, now it's extending across midline. I, I find that useful for serial exams.
0: In full disclosure, I don't think I've ever ever done that or, or felt it on exam, but I, I'm going to do that the next Yeah, time but it, it, the flat of my
2: hand. The key is flat of your hand, and you know, what I was taught was if you're trying to feel for a mass, you don't push down with the examining hand, you use the other hand because when you push down with the examining hand,
0: you're taking away some of the sensitivity.
1: Hmm. That's so cool.
0: Yeah. Another question that goes through my head is, if you have that patient that you're not going to the operating room, you're, you're observing in the hospital overnight, are you pursuing particular hemodynamic values or parameters for these patients? Yeah.
2: So if they're hemodynamically unstable, then, then they get something. They okay. either get angiography or they get uh, surgery. It's the hemodynamically stable patients, yeah. and you're following the hemoglobin's depending on the location, but uh, you're also looking for nerve function because, you know, along the psoas, you, you have the nerve roots to
0: the lower extremity, so you're going to do a similar exam. Is there a top end of the blood pressure that you would tolerate before you consider lowering it, thinking that that might be driving some of the bleeding?
2: The idea of popping the clot for the spontaneous hematomas, I don't think so. Okay. No, I, you know, I don't want a systolic above 180, because of stroke risk, but I I don't specifically think of that for the spontaneous hematomas.
0: Perfect.
1: So calling it back, I get my CT because I didn't do an adequate physical exam with the flat of my hand and shows a retroperitoneal hematoma. That tends to be a theme on our show. (laughs) (laughs) And so overall, I think what's really interesting is the Moral-Level-A lesion, there's a a clear volume in which there's an intervention that's going to happen or not. Whereas with retroperitoneal, it's going to be more based on is there a blush or not, and then the clinical trajectory if there is not. So how my he- hemoglobins and how my pressures are looking. Is
2: that Does that sound right?
0: And some distinction based on mechanism, whether traumatic or spontaneous. Okay.
2: Right. With the Morella-Vale lesion, you're trying to prevent a troublesome chronic issue. With the hematoma, you're looking to see they're not bleeding to death, or they're not going to have tissue injury from pressure. And the one
0: you worry most about is nerve palsy because the nerves are the most sensitive to it. Thinking more specifically about traumatic retroperitoneal hematoma, sometimes we know where, or we have a suspicion where it's coming from. You see solid organ injury like spleen or whatnot. How does that change your, your management? Does it depend on the degree of the splenic lack, et cetera?
2: Well, splenic is generally gives you intraperitoneal as opposed to retroperitoneal, it's an intraperitoneal organ, so it would be more kidney that, okay. that would be retroperitoneal. Yep. The higher the grade, the double AST grade of injury, the higher the risk of bleeding, and the higher the risk of death, which is you know what the the whole double AST uh, uh, grading system is supposed to predict. So you know a little grade one injury of a kidney. Well, if there's a blush, great, you go after it. If there's not a blush, you watch them kidney injuries. Uh, are interesting. In addition to uh, the retroperitoneal hematoma, there's the issue of ongoing bleeding from the kidney, pseudoaneurysm formation, and remember that the urokinase is in the urine, and so you can have delayed bleeding from a high-grade kidney injury. And so the old thing that we used to do, and I I still try to do it, is uh, it's called racking and stacking. And that is somebody comes in, they have kidney laceration, they've got uh, gross hematuria, you get a urine sample every eight hours and what you should see is that it's getting less and less red or pink Hmm. if it's clearing 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 and then all of a sudden it's red that's a sign of a pseudoaneurysm which is a sign of delayed bleed and you would rescan that person looking for a blush but the other issue with the uh, the kidneys is you tend to get an early tamponade from Gerota's fascia. So they they bleed, they're they're hypotensive, you give them a couple of units, and then they stabilize. But Gerota's fascia is an incomplete layer, and it's incomplete and leaves a potential space heading down essentially uh, next to the psoas muscles. So the kidneys will bleed, 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 and then they'll seem to stop but then they'll more slowly bleed and can lead to a huge retroperitoneal hematoma because of this expansion at lower portion of drota's fascia, which is an
0: incomplete layer. Can you explain the racking and stacking again? What is that?
2: Yeah, Typically, patient has a Foley. Even if they don't have a Foley, every eight hours, nurse collects a specimen and puts it on the shelf or on a rack sequentially. Wow. And so you walk into the room and you can say, red, pink, pink, yellow, yellow, pink.
0: That's bad, And that's pseudo-aneurysm. The pseudoaneurysm. Got it. Okay, that's really cool. That is really neat. And I think we could be potentially part of that yeah. by collecting samples and, and having them there and maybe numbering them so that when the patient goes to your unit, then you can already have that trajectory there.
1: And it's definitely something for a lot of our partners who cannot immediately transfer and and are boarding. boarding, Any clue that, that we have that another CT is needed emergently is incredibly helpful.
0: When we reference AAST injury scoring scales, what we're talking about is a grading system published by the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma, specific to individual organs. Each scoring system is very specific and customized to the organ that's being referenced. And the most common ones being referenced are liver, kidney, spleen, and pancreas. But there are guides for much smaller structures like fallopian tubes, testicles, and the urethra, for example. Each one, at least the most common ones that i looked into progresses from grade one through grade five which is considered the most significant the higher the grade the higher the likelihood of bleeding and higher likelihood of death okay let's get back
1: a general overview of what's more concerning to you or not thinking about the point of view of being in austin or albert lee and it's a a spleen grade one like how what does that mean to you as the the person that's
2: getting the call versus not the lower the grade, the less the bleeding risk, and the AAST uh, organ system is supposed to predict mortality. I see. Uh, you know, a five would be associated, you know, whether it's liver or spleen, would be associated with a high mortality. The interesting thing is Don Jenkins pointed this out, that I think a scrotal injury where the, the testicle is destroyed is like a five, and <laughs> it's like, it doesn't really predict mortality, but maybe you wish There's, you were gay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You, I didn't know that yet. Do you have a sense, is that a linear progression? So as you go from one to five, it's, it's a linear It's not, or and, it...
2: and now I'm embarrassing myself. You plug it into, uh, I'm forgetting the methodology, but it, it was based on... The major trauma outcomes from the 80s. Okay. And you take the square of the three worst organs and. Uh, this, you, is you, yeah. this is very intense. This is not. Yeah. No. And, and, and it's, it's a whole, <laughs> it's pr- it's it's a whole and prediction <laughs> uh, scheme yeah. based on a uh, major trauma outcome study from the, the 80s. We've drawn a little bit
1: of a distinction between pure trauma and spontaneous retroperitoneal bleeds. When I'm really thinking about prognostication and things like that, what's, what's the difference?
2: The spontaneous bleeds tend to be in anticoagulant patients and they tend to be in debilitated patients. And so the spontaneous bleeds, while they less frequently require either angiographic or surgical intervention, if they do, those patients generally don't do well. They generally die. Much higher mortality, and there are a number of papers that show that. So, uh, you know, the selection of your elderly, you have a spontaneous bleed, more than 80% of those patients are anticoagulated, they have other multi organ system problems, and they don't do well. And in particular, what is the basis for the anticoagulation, and can you hold it? Because, you know, now you're kind of between a rock and a hard place. If you've got an aortic valve uh, with, I uh, with, this with so emboli mm-hmm. or even worse the prosthetic mitral valve mechanical valve because they tend to form clot faster because they don't have the blood velocity you're trying to decide between bleeding and stroke right or bleeding and massive PE and so we actually encountered this quite a bit with COVID we saw a bunch of patients who had PEs, big PEs, and they're put on anticoagulation and then they get a retroperitoneal bleed and they are sick and you have to pick your poison. You got to stop the bleeding. Nobody's going to do well if they continue to bleed. If they have a stroke or they have a uh, massive PE during that, they're, they're going to die from that. And I, that's the worst case.
1: I struggle with these and I was just giving a talk to the residency yesterday about bad GI bleeds, very similar. And I open it up and they're anticoagulated and I'm always hoping for AFib with no problems. When I have a patient who's a little bit hypotensive and I'm giving my first unit of blood, not massive transfusion, and it's for a valve, I really struggled. In these types of patients, you know, a trauma patient and suddenly I'm at 90 over 50, but they're mentating clearly and they're at seven and have a valve. I struggle with who gets four-factor PCC. Am I giving the vitamin K? Am I just trying to fix it right
2: now and I'm going to let it kind of go? We all struggle with that. And part of it is how bad is the bleed? Yep. Because, you know, my concern always is when we started with factor seven, and then we went to the three-factor PCCs and the four-factor PCCs, in the trauma literature, each of these was associated with about a 10% thrombosis risk. And so, you know, it's not benign, yeah. and I would consider it probably safer, you know, let's take an easy one. you got a patient on, on warfarin. If you can reverse it with plasma and vitamin K, that seems to be gentler than the PCC, where there's a you know a sudden reversal and presumably a, a lower risk of thrombosis. But if hmm. somebody's bleeding in front of you, you give the PCC. The uh, DOAC's also challenging. I think you give the PCCs because you, you really don't have uh, anything else. I think what you've described is so interesting because
1: I often think about giving FFP and I'm thinking I'm going to get to an INR of something like 1.6 or something like that. I'm not going to get to 1. And I've often thought of that as a drawback. Like, why am I going to get an FFP? If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. But I totally see what you're saying. It's a more gentle correction. And if I have this little bit of a tenuous situation... It's a a great situation.
2: Right. And the patients that can't take the volume, okay, then the PCC makes sense. But the correction, I think the INR of thawed plasma is 1.6. So you're not going to correct it beyond that. From my standpoint, you know, our neurosurgeons always want, you know, 1.5 or 1.6. From our standpoint, clinically, anything less than 2 is great.
0: You know, one other bridging technique I've used is where I will reverse them fully from their DOAC or warfarin, and then I'll initiate them on a heparin infusion. Hmm. And the idea being that even just discontinuing a heparin infusion, it's only about 30 minutes of anticoagulation.
2: Interesting. I agree with that entirely, that uh, we face this with elective surgery. Oh, they're on a DOAC, okay, high risk of bleeding, Uh, you stop it for three days. I don't start the DOAC. When I think it's safe after surgery, I start the heparin infusion. You know, depending on your concern, you can you can ramp it up, exactly. see how they do. But you're absolutely right. If there's a problem and you've given the DOAC, all right, wait for for 48 or 72 hours. or give the PCC. Where's the
0: heparin? You just stop. I agree with that entirely. Yeah. Now, one other area of bleeding we have not touched on, that's below the diaphragm generally, would be rectus sheath hematomas. and can you describe what are those patients describing in terms of symptoms? What are you seeing on exam? And how is your approach to that patient changing?
2: So, the classic patient at risk for rectus sheath hematoma is the anticoagulated COPD or on steroids. And, you know, steroids, tissue friability, anticoagulation, you get a little bleed, doesn't stop, you get the tissue, and the coughing, the violent movement that leads Interesting. to muscle okay. tears. That's the classic patient. Now, you know, this newer newer uh, papers uh, don't make all of that distinction, but 80% are, are anticoagulated. And we see it with COPDers. They come in, uh, COPD exacerbation, they're coughing, they're anticoagulated. Uh, We saw it with COVID that they get the hematomas and, you know, some of them are already anticoagulant and some of them not. Our practice has always been get a CT scan. If you see a blush with the rectus sheath hematoma, you go for it. And sometimes we we get some pushback from IR. Okay, you know, blush doesn't necessarily translate to bleeding, but there's a defined vessel that nourishes the uh, rectus. And that's the epigastric, you know, inferior epigastric, superior epigastric. And so, you know, we've taken the analogy of you've got venous bleeding from the spleen. You take out the splenic artery to decrease the driving pressure to lead to bleeding. Hmm. You have a blush, whether it's arterial or venous, you refer them to take out the uh, epigastric. But again, most of those patients are anticoagulated. Most of them, if you stop the anticoagulation they stop bleeding. In severe cases, yeah, you, you have to open up and uh, evacuate hematoma and pack. The psoas muscle, it's fairly morbid to do that.
0: So if I'm hearing correctly, if they're anticoagulated and it's safe to reverse them and observe them, that might be a, a good first step. If they continue to bleed, then go to IR. Is that yeah. the right way? Yeah. Yeah. And then in this case, it's not the volume of bleeding that determines uh, so much as the fact that they have active bleeding is a concern because of i'm assuming the same thing that we talked about in the thigh for example where there's going to be
2: right and and the pain. problem with the rectus muscle is it's a muscle of posture so if you're standing you're always firing the rectus you also fire the rectus when you're breathing you know it it uh, splints the abdominal wall to give you diaphragmatic preload and if you cough there's always a violent contraction of the rectus muscle so you know, you can imagine somebody who's got a COPD exacerbation, they're coughing, they're coughing, they're coughing. The, the rectus, it, it, it's hard to rest the rectus.
0: Yeah.
1: Moving further north to our, our final cavity, a patient comes in and you see some concern for thoracic trauma. What's going through your head in terms of trying to identify bleeding in, in the thoracic compartment and what are the the misses that you've seen that and and pearls you would give somebody who's in a single coverage ED to, to make sure they identify the life threat?
2: Okay, well, first of all, you know, it starts it starts with your primary uh, assessment, you know, airway, breathing, circulation, and ATLS used to emphasize this, and I, I notice, you know, I still teach ATLS, and it's not as emphasized, but torso is a major source of occult bleeding in the trauma patient, and so. Part of your circulation examination includes feeling the chest wall for uh, defects and feeling the abdomen and the pelvis because if you've got abdominal tenderness or pelvic tenderness, that raises the risk of intraabdominal bleeding. And as you know, with blunt trauma, solid organ injuries are the the major source. So, right off in the trauma bay, your chest exam should not be just auscultation, but you're, you know you're feeling the chest wall and then your circulation you go right to the belly, you're feeling for tenderness, and this gives you a chance to feel for for uh, abdominal tenderness and pelvic tenderness, which is gonna be your major source of occult hemorrhage.
1: This is such a key point, and it's something that I learned as your intern uh, in the trauma bay. I remember you know, you're know, you picking up different things from every attending, and I remember listening on both sides and going, breath sounds are good, and then I felt for a radial pulse, circulation, and you gave me incredible feedback that i carry forth to my patients now Uh, circulation exam is an abdominal palpation and pumping the chest wall doesn't add time but right if you
2: saw external bleeding part of your circulation is oh there's external bleeding compress it but you're looking for occult bleeding the chest and the belly cavity are are your sources for occult bleeding so then, the next is the chest X-ray, pneumothorax. That's great, but hemothorax, widened mediastinum. You know, those 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 are the things there. And then it's also mechanism of injury. With blunt injuries, okay, you're looking for uh, aortic injury. You're looking for hemothorax with uh, penetrating injury. And you know, we're we're not a penetrating center, so the trainees are not as experienced with it, but what is the thing that has penetrated you know stab wound gunshot wound and trajectory determination equals injury identification if you've got a transmediastinal trajectory of a bullet that's a big deal if you've got a trajectory that's just limited to uh, right chest tube is all that you need for that so you know those, those are the things that go in the next piece you know we we started fixing rib fractures in two thousand and nine. That was a new practice to me. I was told it was never to do it, and, and you know i've I've embraced it. And I've learned a lot about bleeding from rib fractures. and we have we have a patient on the service now, which is the classic. So little old guy falls. He's got an eighth and ninth rib fracture. He's got a little pneumothorax, put a pigtail catheter in. That's great. And, you know, one of the things we look at with rib fracture patients is, you know, how impaired are they from pulmonary toilets? So the guy has a vital capacity of 2.5 liters. That's great. Last night, he deteriorates. He's got, all of a sudden, a massive hemothorax. And the source of it is he's got a single, very displaced rib fracture, and that very displaced rib fracture means that the neurovascular bundle is on stretch. And these are the people who will have delayed hemothorax from tearing of that intercostal vein. And so while he wouldn't meet criteria for uh, rib fracture stabilization based on his mechanics, you know, his, his cough is OK, his breathing is when he coughs, He'll tear that intercostal, and so we would fix that rib, not from a pulmonary toilet standpoint, not from a pain standpoint, but from a bleeding standpoint. That's something that, you know, we've picked up over the years as as we've seen the, the way the rib fractures behave.
0: What are you looking at on that type of rib fracture? that tells you that they're at higher risk for it's
2: very displaced it's not just it's a little displaced you know uh half of a rib the two ends are hanging in the breeze and you look at it and you say oh (laughs) that's bad yeah that's what you're looking for
0: and then earlier we talked about you touched on penetrating traumatic injuries in the chest and i seem to recall between the nipples and the umbilicus we're looking for bleeding above and below the diaphragm. Correct. That's still, okay. Correct.
2: And, you know, the problem is that uh, the diaphragms move, and so uh, you're looking for diaphragmatic injury because somebody may have been uh, in uh, full exhalation when, when they were stabbed. Mm-hmm. And really, the diaphragmatic injuries aren't so much bleeding, but it's late presentation of diaphragmatic hernia, which can be uh, clinically silent but has a very high, late morbidity mortality if you miss it.
1: And this is, we're referring to the box and- The uh, cardiac box, the, yeah. The cardiac box. And so between the nipples, umbilicus, and and what, what, what are uh, we- the Clavicles, about? yeah. Clavicles, okay. Yeah,
2: and that was originally described for knife fighting. If you wanted to kill your opponent, that, that you aimed for that box, and it was secondarily adopted by uh, trauma surgeons. So yeah, you're looking for bleeding, Or you're looking for cardiac injury or great vessel injury and one of the things that i it's a great paper and nobody knows about it i'm forgetting the first author but it's from 1995 and it was for penetrating cardiac injury and is echocardiogram sensitive for it and it turns out that echocardiogram is a great study to exclude penetrating cardiac injury unless you have a hemothorax if you don't have a hemothorax, it's 98% sensitive for excluding penetrating cardiac injury. If you have a hemothorax, it goes to 50%. Interesting. And the idea is that if you have a hemothorax, you may have a cardiac injury with a pericardial tear that decompresses into the thorax. So you're not going to see the pericardial fluid because it's leaking into the chest.
0: What I'm hearing from that is that if you don't see any kind of fluid outside the lungs and you don't see fluid around the heart on ultrasound, that is reassuring.
2: Yeah, it's 98%... Uh, Exclusive. Uh, yeah, 98% uh, sensitive. So yeah. uh, in the absence of a hemothorax, it's a great study. In the presence of a hemothorax, now you've got a conundrum.
0: After the discussion that we had live, Dr. Schiller sent us the reference he was talking about. It's from the Journal of Trauma in 1995, titled Use of Echocardiography to Detect Occult Cardiac Injury After Penetrating Thoracic Trauma, a Prospective Study by Dr. Meyer, Dr. Jessen, and Dr. Grayburn. In this, about 105 hemodynamically stable patients were evaluated uh, with echocardiography. Again, this was 1995. Um, and he already went through some of the results. I think it's worth mentioning that we might want to redo this study and see how things show up today, but very interesting paper. I'll put the full reference in the show notes. Thinking about the patient who has the pigtail catheter in who then starts to bleed, are you changing that out for a large-bore yes, chest tube?
2: Yes, absolutely, and and in in fact, the, the patient that uh, I'm referring to had the pigtail catheter for a pneumothorax and it worked great. It it reduced the pneumothorax. The patient developed the hemothorax, pigtail plugs, they've got their pneumothorax back. We don't mess around we, we just put in a large board chest tube. And you know, there've been people who have been saying, Oh, you know, pigtail catheters are as effective as a chest tube. I haven't seen that. They clog and this individual's clog. But, you know, getting to the percutaneous techniques and, and remember, I'm an old school surgeon, I uh, put it in the chest tube. But now that we're fixing rib fractures, I actually prefer if you can take care of a pneumothorax with a pigtail as well as a formal chest tube, I think it's better for the patients who will need their ribs fixed because the ribs are iner- invariably fractured right where you would put the chest tube. <laughs> and again, my worldview is that life is a battle between us and the bacteria trying to eat us. You put in a plate, oh, it's contaminated. The the, the plate gets bacteria. It's a biofilm. You got to take the... So, Interesting. So from an infection standpoint, now that we're fixing rib fractures, if you can put in a pigtail, much smaller hole, you don't have the big wound there. But if you do put in the chest tube, yeah, get the chest tube in wherever you can get it in. But it kind of stinks that it's usually where the ribs are broken and you're going to have to put a plate. That's new. And if you'd asked me in 2010 about this, I'd be like, ah, oh, put it in the chest tube. I hadn't thought about the down the line treatment, so. So I
1: have to ask because I, I always want to know about uh, new Don't do techniques. Don't do, Don't do it. Don't do it. So the same gentleman that I have before me has been stabbed. It looks like it's in the chest and we lose pulses. I decompress both sides. It doesn't seem like a pneumo. Am I with you at the bedside? Are we working as a team to proceed to an open thoracotomy? Or at some point, are we considering Reboa? He did it.
0: <laughs> we have this internal debate about whether to bring up Reboa on the yes. show. Yeah.
2: So, so Reboa has not been shown to be effective if the bleeding is above the takeoff of the superior mesenteric and celiac artery. The gut doesn't take the joke of uh, occlusion of SMA and celiac. So you know for pelvic bleeding, great, the, the, the great technique. As you know, Reboa is great if you do it a lot, and it's not great if you never do it and you're trying to, to suddenly do it as a rescue technique. Talking to my friends who are at Reboa centers, and everyone said a Reboa center is like, it's the greatest thing. But they're putting in a lot of femoral lines in patients who don't end up needing them because you got to do it all the time to become facile, to have not just your technical abilities, but the whole team and the whole setup to be able to do Reboa. And at our center, we've tried to bring Reboa in a few times, but the need for it is so low that We haven't really embraced it. So
1: it's really a patient um, who might have a pelvic hematoma. That's really kind of a. Yeah,
2: yeah. And if if you're talking something in the chest or something, uh, you know, mesenteric bleeding, great, you'll stop the bleeding, but they'll die of mesenteric ischemia. Thank you for
1: that. We've been debating for a long time whether I would ever be allowed to ask a Robo question or not. So. Okay, well, <laughs> snuck it in there. <laughs> That's great. You know,
2: it, it's uh, for the select patient that we don't see a lot of. Yep. For the center that does it frequently, it's a great thing. It's not something for, oh, I'm I'm out at. Uh, a rural hospital and I've never done it, and my respiratory therapists and my nurses and all the people who be necessary to have the setup
0: and, and run the stuff, they've never done it, yep. you're not going to be successful. Okay. Let's take a moment and recap what we've talked about. First, we talked about Morel Lavallee lesions. These are skin-based bleeding conditions that create a degloving injury typical for the hip and buttock area. The danger isn't about blood loss, but rather it's about the creation of a debilitating, recurrent problem with a fibrous hematoma capsule. What we can do to avoid this for our patients beyond simple awareness is to remember that about four weeks out, the risk of this capsule formation increases. And so if there's a chance for a morel lesion, having surgical involvement before that time can get a chance to have the least debilitating or morbid outcome. Furthermore, to remember that 50 cc's and over early surgical consultation can make a difference because in general at that point going to the OR would be beneficial. All patients need guidance on compression. Dr. Schiller's personal recommendation is to use bicycle shorts for this and consider a knee immobilizer to reduce the movements that produce shear stress on the skin layers. Of course, provide analgesia and routine injury recommendations such as cold application. We contrasted morel lesions with hematomas, for example, subcutaneous or thigh hematomas. When these are traumatic, you will again identify them on a contrasted CT as imaging of choice. The goals are to reverse anticoagulation, be watchful for the coagulation of trauma, and compress what you can. Of course, monitor hematologic and coagulation indices, such as the Teg and hemoglobin. Consider admission and IR for those with arterial bleeding, in certain cases specific to subcutaneous hematomas the decision to go to the operating room is a judgment that is fueled by the size of the hematoma because the larger it is the more stress it's applying to other vessels and can cause more injury and thus more bleeding and thus more injury and that cascade can be very debilitating and problematic There's also this issue of skin viability, as the bigger the hematoma, it can affect perfusion to the skin and cause significant skin ischemia. Although you may be tempted to release the pressure on these lesions with an incision, remember, this allows a portal for bacteria to enter and enjoy the very nourishing blood supply that's there. When talking about intramuscular hematomas, it's not so much about skin breakdown, though, but rather watching for compartment syndrome and nerve compression syndromes. Most of these will stop on their own with compression, reversal of anticoagulation, but the difficulty will be in immobilization. To help with lower limb muscle bleeding, sometimes patients may need hospitalization, especially being mindful that a few days after the bleeding stops is when that clot might be very vulnerable to, re- uh, to removal from movements and there can be re-bleeding. We also talked about retroperitoneal hematomas, such as from kidney, psoas, or spine injuries. Look for a blush on CT. Of course, reverse anticoagulation when you can, and monitor those blood tests as we are in all these cases. Consider IR to address active bleeding targets, especially for the traumatic patients, traumatic injuries versus spontaneous bleeding. Speaking of traumatic injuries, consider using the AAST grading system to prognosticate bleeding and death risk. Specific to traumatic kidney injuries, we talked about racking and stacking of urine and how actual collection of physical samples of urine over time can help you visually monitor gross hematuria and identify pseudoaneurysms earlier rather than later. Also, be prepared that there can be initial tamponade of bleeding with a slow internal bleed that occurs because of the nature of Gerota's fascia, and this can lead to significant retroperitoneal bleeding from kidney injuries. For spontaneous bleeding in the retroperitoneum, usually 80% will stop on their own with standard conservative measures such as reversal of anticoagulation and immobilization wherever it applies. Be sure to consider palpating the next patient that you have with a retroperitoneal hematoma with the flat part of your hand and applying slow steady pressure to see if you can identify the differences in the fullness. We also talked about rectus sheath hematomas. These we should be thinking about in patients who are having forceful coughing, might be on steroids that causes a risk there, as well as anticoagulation. Most of these types of bleeding will stop and resolve on their own, but some may need to go to IR to address the inferior and superior epigastric vessels. Thoracic bleeding, we talked about many types of injuries in the chest, but one in particular that we want to highlight is that if you see isolated rib fracture, without significant pain or breathing mechanical disruption if the fracture itself is significantly displaced it could be placing stress on the blood vessels and be a precipitant for significant hemothorax finally we did talk about tourniquets even though that was not the intention of this hematoma episode remember that if you tighten it appropriately and there remains a pulse Don't tighten further, but rather add another tourniquet just proximal to the one you have. Generally, no more than three turns on the windlass should be required. Combat tourniquets are better than improvised ones, and don't place the tourniquet over a bony prominence. Instead, make sure to go just proximal to that if you need to, to get control of the arterial bleeding. Remember that you want the pulse to be gone, and even then, there may be continued flow on ultrasound, so if you're unsure, apply another tourniquet. Okay. That's a lot of content. Thank you so much for being a part of this, Henry. You are amazing. We're incredibly grateful for all that you've taught us in this episode and beyond. And to you as the listeners, thank you for finishing the last episode of our season two interviews. We'll have the grand rounds episode in a couple weeks. So come back for that until the next year. We hope that you have a wonderful holiday season and that you have a great happy new year. We hope to bring even more wonderful things for you next year. Please tune in. Thank you so much. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.